The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hello and welcome to Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal. I'm Joe Costello and we've got another great episode for you. Lake Speed Jr., my co-host. Lake, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Joe. Thanks for having me back. And man, I can't I can't wait for this. Everybody's in for a treat right now. I'm just telling you, keep your ears tuned for the next half hour or however long this is going to be. It's going to be good. Well, this is exactly going to be great. It's a you know what we could call like in the biz as maybe a best of episode, but it's not really because only select people got to hear this audio from the Engine Performance Expo, in particular Warren Johnson. And we've got a couple of episodes that are going to be like this, and I think it it stems from you and I standing there being blown away by the content <laughs> that these guys are dropping on us and just knowing this has to get out to the Hidden Horsepower audience at some point, and now is the time. Do you agree? I mean, it was amazing stuff. Wholeheartedly, yeah. When Warren, the Professor Johnson, is there in his element doing his thing, you know, just bringing the word, right? Uh, it's like, wait, this this has got to be a hidden horsepower episode and of course we talked to the guys at in performance expo and they're like yeah that would be a great idea let's let's take some of these great clips uh from the engine performance expo when you have a guy like warren johnson or a doug yates or a john callies and they're telling these stories and they're sharing their experiences you know much like we do here on a regular basis of a regular episode of hidden horsepower let's take that audio let's share it with the group so they can know what's going on with the engine performance expo because hey there's going to be more of these in the future so this is a good taste of what is available there but also it's just great information period yes stories and and fun and you know being able to like an honor for me to just ask questions of warren and he answers them which is is great now this is all on youtube want everybody to know that and uh, we've been working with the folks at engine performance expo to take the original content and put it on youtube where's that youtube channel before we dive in engine performance expo that's all you have to do if you go to YouTube, type in Engine Performance Expo. It's going to come up. Hit subscribe. You know, click the bell so you get the notifications. Each week, there's a little snippet. There's about a hour segment from the expo being released. So, like I said, what we're sharing on today's episode of Hidden Horsepower is within all of that. So we're just making it easier for the listener to find these nuggets. But if you want to make that deeper dive and really get into all the different aspects of the engine performance, you should definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel, Engine Performance Expo. Absolutely. All right. Without further ado, he's been referenced and mentioned on Hidden Horsepower many times. I also believe we got a firm confirmation that when the Warren Johnson book hits the bookshelves, he's going to come on Hidden Horsepower and speak with us about it. But right now, let's kick it back to the Engine Performance Expo and our time with the Professor Warren Johnson. 
Coming to the stage here at the Engine Performance Expo, the professor of pro stock, Mr. Warren Johnson, Mr. Lake Speed Jr. Gentlemen, sit down, get ready, get in, and this is it. Warren's got a book coming out in April. You can get it all over the internet, all the secrets, all the everything. It's going to be in there. Uh, I'm super excited to get it, but we've got him right here. Warren Johnson, Lake Speed. Warren, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you doing now, Lake? Like this, you're you're you know you always say you're a NASCAR guy. This is uh, <laughs> this is our you know when it comes to uh, naturally aspirated. This guy's the professor. He's the the goat, if you will. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, AERA had a uh, one of their we call them um, seminar days at Total Seal, and mm -hmm. Warren came out and gave one of the speeches there. And as I'm watching Warren talk, I was like. I recognize who the competitor in the intellect is. I think I even told you that day, you're like my dad. You're cut from the same cloth as my dad. It's that driven, intense competitor, but that mind's always working, always trying to figure out the way to make that mousetrap a little bit better. And so that's why I was, I was like, we had to have you here. I mean, if we're going to go talk about engines, who else better talk about engines than you're right. I mean, he's the goat of the NA engine because in my opinion, and I've worked with a lot of really great engine builders, the pro stock motor is the pinnacle of naturally aspirated engines. What do you think? Yeah, start there. Uh, they're a little intense, let's put it that way. Uh, try to not leave anything on the table, whether it's porting, any kind of uh, frictional losses, anything to make that needle on the dyno bend just a little bit more. So it gets a little intense. And, you know, in that search, that's got to be, you know, we see on the racetrack for so many years, of course, Warren's stats, 97 wins, six championships, 200 miles per hour. But that happens in the shop and in the engine room. And you maybe go down a road that you think is going to work and it doesn't work. you got to back up, go in a different direction. It's got to be countless hours and just keeping track of all the things that you have done to try to find that horsepower. Well, that's why I've got these uh, archives upstairs, if you will. And we throw nothing away. We look at it, go up there a year later and think, what the hell was I thinking when I did that? And it's it's a constant educational system, uh, program. You're looking at every little finite element, whether it's materials, lubricants, everything. You leave nothing on the table. And once you, I'm sure there are things that you tried that didn't work because the technology or the materials weren't there, but as time goes by, oh, that thing I used to maybe try to do, maybe it'll work now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's probably, the most common question I get asked is, how much faster can these things go? And I said, there's only two limiting factors, the human mind and the materials. That's it. Interesting. Lake? You know, so when Warren was talking about that every little bitty bit, reminded me of our conversation we had on one of the episodes of the podcast, talking about, you know, Joey Arrington, we were talking about uh, Chad Canals. That's one thing I learned from Chad Canals, who's obviously a great crew chief, mm -hmm. is that you don't go a second faster a lap at Daytona, with one change. Nope. It, it's probably 10 or 20 changes that give you a tenth or a half a tenth to build to a second. There, there's, there's this, when you get to the top of that mountain in power, there aren't big chunks. There's no low hanging fruit left. So you have to be meticulous, like you said, in finding all those little details and just working through them and just, well, that's like you said, what, when you're done today, you're driving back home because you got more work to do, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and it boils down to, it's a hundred changes but only 20 worked. 
Right, right. I remember I think you said at that AERA event that, you know, you and Glidden, your rivalry was just epic. I mean, everybody, even the NASCAR <laughs> guys, knew, you know, Glidden. Of course, my dad was a Ford guy, so, you know, he kind of ended up with that Glidden side of the game. Everybody's so. got problems. <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> Continues. You know, so, but when you were sharing some of those stories about your competition with Bob at, at the AERA event, they, that was very revealing. Why don't you share some of those kind of, what did you think about Bob? Actually, Bob and I, we probably didn't speak 20 words over the 20 plus years that we raced against each other. So not that we hated each other. We hated to lose is what it amounted to because both of us were kind of unique. We raced for a living. We didn't have somebody piling a bunch of money on us to, to race. We raced for an actual living. So we didn't have, there was no animosity between us other than the fact that we just didn't want to lose. Right. Oh, there's a paycheck on the line. Pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're racing for a yeah. paycheck, it makes a difference yeah. if you win or lose. Uh, one of the things that it, Matt told me about, because I know you did some motors for, for Matt when he was mm -hmm. uh, racing, he said into the subject we're talking about, about cylinder head porting specifically, that one week you guys dyno tested five different cylinder head combinations and you were every day, at the end of the day, going back and cutting a new set of heads or changing the heads and then redying them the next day. Talk a little bit about how impossible that would have been in the past. I mean, Doug Yates was here yesterday talking about his dad and where Robert started and how that in the old days, or not that long ago, it took him six hours to hone a block to get the finish he wanted and now they can do it in 45 minutes 45 minutes and that what was it what three months he said to do the yates d3 cylinder heads in the beginning and now they can do them in six hours so talk about that that arc that progression over time because you've seen it better than anybody else well absolutely uh won our we won our first championship in 92 i think it was <clears throat> as far as the nhra side and in that year in our shop we ported 20 plus sets of heads, hand ported them. Right. You know, old manual Yes, label. sir. Yes, sir. And we started looking, if we're going to do this for a living, I can't, <laughs> I'll be wore out by next year. And so that's why I invested in my first CNC uh, equipment back in 1992. Now, fast forward to today with the CNC equipment we have today, what we have today, and I've, I've gone through two different CNC, other CNC uh, machining centers since then. The equipment that we have today, the software is so advanced that we can make changes, literally take the heads off the dyno, make the changes we want in any port, chamber, whatever we're working on, and two, three hours later have them back on the dyno. But because the software we have in the Rottler equipment that we have is so advanced, it it's far exceeds anything we even dreamt about 20 years ago. Wow! So, like, I mean, when Matt told me you were literally dynoing an engine, pulling the heads off, you know, redesigning the port, cutting them and putting them back together by the next morning, that seemed crazy to me. Now you're saying you could do it the same day. Same day, yeah, absolutely. Wow. I mean, well, that's, that time, you know, just recently, uh, yesterday, I did a video yesterday morning with a guy named Jake Raby, who's over in Monroe, Georgia, he's a Porsche guy. And he's been doing some testing recently with the Sumabore, you know, the bore coating technology. Mm -hmm. and. 
running through ring combinations of things. One of the things that Jake did is we used an air-cooled flat four engine because essentially the cylinders are jugs which you can remove. Right. Yeah. So he can go through a couple of changes in a day just because he can, it's so easy to take the engine apart. It can be apart in 15 minutes. It's that speed of development that's exponential. Like you said before, I mean, I remember my, old, my dad's shop, it's a funny story. <laughs> I walked through there. He does. My dad still does vintage go karts and stuff. And I walked through the other day, and he's in there in the old cylinder head porting room, porting on a two-stroke, you know, uh, uh, sleeve. You know. Oh, exactly. Yeah, he's doing all that, and I'm like, I should take a picture of that because here he is with the grinder over yeah. his shoulder, you know, grinding away on this little two-stroke uh, sleeve. The time that it would take to build an engine in the old days, to test an idea, and then go run it and they get back, it was so long that your mind can think of so many other variables and changes, but now you can actually test them almost in real time, sounds like. Yeah, you can make a change, and that's part of the real world of development as far as we're concerned, is you can take and make a change, document that change, mm -hmm. make another change, and because we're all prejudiced in our thinking, you can see that, okay, my thinking is not correct because I've made two or three changes and they've all gone in the same direction, whether it's good or bad. But at least when you document it, you can make really a good progression over a period of time that is way accelerated beyond anything we could do years ago. Like I said, this machine I got now is seven times faster than the five axis I had before from start of a project to finish. That's amazing. And the key word you said in there is document. Yep. Because we can lie to ourselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. We're all, we're all basically uh, prejudiced in our thinking. And oh, that, yes. That screws things up a lot of times. Certainly want it to work. <laughs> you don't want to make mistakes, but you better learn from your mistakes so you don't do it again. Well, exactly. I think about some of the things you've done, of course, on the track. We'll talk about that at some point. But designing the engine that is still in use now. Like to me, um, that is a, a major accomplishment when you watch a field of pro stockers out there and they've all got, they've all got that th same design. Talk a little bit about that process. Like, uh, you know, we just had a segment about custom parts manufacturing, like thinking of the problem and solving the problem. You solve the problem for pro stock in a way that they still are using your solution. Well, I, I was blessed to have that project to start with with Oldsmobile back in 1983. Uh, but I'm the type of person that looks at the big picture, not just one particular element of it, but take the big picture. Okay, we've got to support the crankshaft better. Cylinder walls got to be better. We better have a better clamping arrangement uh, that so we can seal the thing and not intrude on anything as far as water jackets, spark plugs, ports, whatever. So you have to look at the whole concept of an engine, not just take what's there and work around it. That's just wasted time as far as I'm concerned. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, eventually, there'll be time for a little Q&A. We're going to be over at a machine here real soon, which is going to be kind of cool. I want to spend a little more time on the, uh, the you and Bob and more, uh, more on the racing for a living aspect. Was that a good decision? <laughs> Race for a living? It's well, you have to understand that I came from an extremely frugal background, so racing for a living looked a lot better than driving a truck in a, in a mine for the rest of your life. Which I'm not saying that's bad. We all need iron and steel to build what we want, but that just wasn't for me. So racing looked at looked like something that I could probably do 
relatively well and in the long run it proved out uh, and I'm still having fun and I can afford to have fun. You've got a book coming out here in April and uh, Don the Snake's got a book out now so a couple of drag racing icons got books out it's going to be great. Uh, what was that process like kind of like uploading your life experience countless stories I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff we don't want to spoil any of them but people are going to be able to buy this but uh, going through the process of putting your life out there and sorting through these moments I can think of like a million moments with certain other manufacturers that will be super interested and I'm going to get the book right away but uh, the process of going through and having a book written uh, writing a book about your life actually I was really fortunate because my wife took every note every picture along this whole journey wow. so she was able to provide kelly wade the, the author all that information i mean there was just volumes and volumes and volumes of records that she was able to dig into and i think she was kind of overwhelmed with how much uh, information she had at her disposal so it uh, as far as i was concerned there was a few interviews here and there to, to correct some a uh, few processes and so forth but uh, it was easy for me. Uh, my wife and Kelly Wade took care of the whole thing. Wow. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about Warren as that thing comes out, of course. Uh, the 200-mile-per-hour run, how much went into preparing for that? It was a milestone that was out there that you were chasing for a while, came close a few times, everybody thinking maybe, you know, the last great milestone in drag racing uh, for cars, certainly. Well, our whole racing operation has been blessed with that uh, type of uh, performance because we prepared so meticulously. We were the first car to run 180, 190, 200. Kurt ran the first six-second run, and that, that was all because of the way we prepared the cars. It was not necessarily all horsepower. You know, you got to get it down to the ground, and you got to have aerodynamics involved. So it was. It was an interesting process for me because there was so many aspects of the operation that you had to address to achieve what you were trying to address. Lake, I want you to jump in here in a second, but I got one more for the professor, which this whole Engine Performance Expo concept is so we can share information. We want to share information. We want to give other people your information. That's a relatively new concept in what you're doing. Sharing. That's a no-no in his, in his well, background. That's, <laughs> exactly. There were people that were trying to find out your information. There had to be some espionage going on back in the day. Uh, it's kind of a role reversal a little bit. Now you want to share the information. Back then, you were trying to hide the information. Anybody ever try to sneak around and find your information? Oh, I've had numerous people with cameras sneaking under trucks, trailers, trying to take pictures of everything we had, overhead shots and whatnot. And there was a couple of instances where I had gone to a school that was uh, with a guy that was taking pictures and he told me the team he was taking pictures for. So it, it was an ongoing deal, but uh, there wasn't a whole lot you could learn from the outside. You know, you look at the outside of a house, you have no idea what's on the inside. Very interesting. Late. Well, it's a great segue, actually, because, you know, backstage we were chatting about something that we, he had mentioned last week when we were talking, that there isn't a magic recipe that goes across the board. And I think one of the guys yesterday mentioned it, that engines are a system. I think it was John Callies. Engines are systems. Mm -hmm. You can't take just one component and say, oh, that's, that's the component. It's going to make everything work. If it does, it was just kind of dumb luck that your, everything in your system was so wrong that you needed this one piece that would fix it. 
it, they all have to have that symbiotic relationship. It's everything is a system from start to finish. They all have to work in unison to produce the results you want. Exactly. I mean, you, and you have to look at everything. Right? Like as I said before, you know, materials, oils, what have you. Uh, so let's go somewhere. We're, we're talking about this. This section is supposed to be about cylinder head manifold porting. Here's something as a you know chemistry kind of guy that I think about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on. What about the fuel and its role in how you address cylinder head design and flow? Well, first of all, if you're designing a cylinder head, you have have to establish what you're trying to achieve. What's the RPM range? What's the engine size? All of that, uh, what restrictions have you have on the intake uh, and so forth. You have to look at all the as aspects of what you have to work with. Then you start designing it, and because you can obviously have different valve sizes for different bore sizes. So mm -hmm. that's the first one. Second is, okay, what's the RPM range we're gonna work in? And realistically, right. because probably the valve train wasn't even designed right, this, establish that RPM range. So everything is has to work together. So you have, you have to look at the complete system. And when you mention uh, fuel, well, you look at a pound of air, uh, air, no, a cubic foot of air weighs about 0.08 pounds. Okay, 0.08. But that's a compressible mm -hmm. medium. You introduce fuel in there, which is non-compressible. Right. And if you take it by volume, fuel is about close to 600 times heavier than air. Yeah, so roughly seven have, pounds a gallon, so yeah. yeah. Okay. So you take that and you, you're gonna put that through the port, something that's got a lot of inertia and you expect it to flow the same as air. <laughs> I think we've got something going on here that, you know, everybody likes to say that their flow bench is right, but I have yet to see a correctly designed flow bench in all my years of flow bench testing. So they're using a tool that they don't even know anything about. Right. And they're, they're getting a number to spit out that's probably not relative to anything. So uh, it, it's kind of a bragging rights is about all of the amounts though, you know. They got their flow bench test and I, I flow this much air and you flow that much air. My cylinder head is better and probably neither one of them are worth a damn. Well, that brings up the question we talked about it this morning with the guys from Melling about on oil pumps, pressure versus flow. Mm -hmm. Okay flow versus velocity big same, difference right same thing with a cylinder head right so one of the things about fuel that i find interesting and some people don't recognize this fact that we don't burn liquid fuel nope. the fuel has to become a vapor so there's atomization is just taking that bulk liquid fuel and making it into a small droplet and carburetors and injectors that's their job but that's not that job isn't done yet. You gotta go from atomization to vaporization, elaborate. It's still you got a compressible medium and a non-compressible medium. You're trying to introduce that into the cylinder in a homogeneous fashion so it can burn uniformly. That is really the key to the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, there you go, now you hit on it. Yeah, it's, it's that homogeneous it, part it, so it, it's all evenly dispersed so you don't have two areas that are too lean, too rich, so that you get the flame travel, which we talked about yesterday, being, yeah, go on, you're, you're the smart one, not me. I don't know about smart, but, uh, well, look at a fuel engine. They have to have two spark plugs in it to get the damn thing lit. 
Well, that's because it doesn't burn. It goes off in a series of explosions. So gasoline, if you have to use two spark plugs to light it, you don't have a properly designed combustion chamber, a la a Hemi, mm -hmm. which a Hemi, as far as a naturally aspirated form, is worst possible design you could possibly have. So I'm not enthralled with any Hemi engines, but yeah, they'll flow a lot of air, but they can't burn a lot of fuel. This burning of the fuel is what makes the heat that generates the work. The expansion. And work, yep, and work is power. Mm -hmm. Of course, like you said before, in, in a engine, especially a pro stock engine, it's all about minimizing the losses of that power. Yeah, when you look at the efficiency, I, I think Formula One has just achieved 50% efficiency as far yes. as power output for uh, amount of fuel they're burning. We're not even close to that right now. We're probably high 30s at best, I would guess. Oh yeah, I think some of the production engines today say <clears throat> that modern turbocharged DI engines are in that low 30s range. Yeah, yeah. but Mercedes did that video. They're at 52% thermal efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's mind blowing. You know, like oh, you said, absolutely. we have a long way to go to, to get there. Warren, is that why, uh, talking about flow and the different mediums, why you were such a proponent of fuel injection early on and really trying to push pro stock in that direction like 20 years before it actually happened because you realized that uh, that would be the best way to achieve that efficiency? Well, I've been working on a development project for a major company uh, that involved fuel injection. And we saw the benefits of that right off. This was about oh, middle 90s, I would guess. But the real advantage to me was longevity because I've always been a proponent. You can't tune it up if it's blown up. And <laughs> Write that one Save down. that one. Yes. Save that one. So we saw immediately that we maybe 30, 40% increase in engine life. Now we're looking at, on a typical carbureted pro stock engine, if you're maximizing any particular uh, component, camshaft, cylinder head, what, what have you, on a carbureted motor. You could put 35 maximum pulls on it, and you could probably put eight top rings in it. Not knocking the rings were bad. No problem, no Good for sales. And maybe pistons, and might, if you knock the uh, pin bores out around, you might be putting connecting rods in there. Now we take them apart at 100 pulls, doing the same procedure, and put the same parts back in wow. with fuel injection. So it's at least three or four times better as far as engine longevity is concerned and we're finally achieving more power than we ever did with carburetors which involved about a year and a half of uh, work redesigning everything to utilize the fuel injection or its advantages. Very interesting. I think I can hear Ben Strader cheering all the way yeah. from Lake Havasu City, <laughs> yeah. Arizona. Fuel right injection. Now. But she's talking about fuel injection versus carburetors later today. So stay tuned. Don't go away. Well, <laughs> well I think about that. And there are still some people that uh, talk about the carburetor days. And it was certainly cool and interesting and, uh, and neat and all. But you had to get, there was some luck involved. Like how many sets of carburetors did you have sitting around the shop? And what separated one from the next? Now you can, you you can make it what you want it to be. Well, carburetors, at any one time, we probably had 20 or 30 sets. I never kept track of it, but every one were different in the aspect of metering air and fuel in the ranges that we want. When you, we ended up with uh, the fuel, uh, the carburetor stuff at the end of it, uh, trying to achieve high-speed power at you know 10 to 12,000 RPM. The carburetors had gotten so big, they had a very, very narrow operating range 
probably in the vicinity of 500 RPM where they were efficient. Where now with the fuel injection, you can make that thing ef as efficient as you can over 2000 RPM because you can meter the fuel in response to how much air you have available. Very interesting. Now, we will have an opportunity here in a little bit, a little Q&A for WJ, but me and Lake are taking that up uh, right now. Like, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, I got him here, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, so later this day, uh, Billy Gobble is going to come on, talk about some camshaft yeah. stuff. And I know one of the things that came up in even the NASCAR ranks. Billy's watching right now. Uh, oh, good, good. Yeah. And I'm sure it was done in the pro stock days, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that because of a common plenum manifold and of course you guys with dual carbs you had not the issue that the nascar guys had with a single uh manifold the, the runner links were unequal so guys got to playing around with changing the cam lobes based on if it was an outer cylinder versus an inner, inner cylinder due to the the runner link changes made me think okay obviously manifold wise you guys had big split dominators mm -hmm. and all that to try to reduce that, right? In the NASCAR aspect, they had different runner lengths. Correct. You can change the size and this, that, whatnot, but you still got a different length. Right. So that makes the tuned length different. Right. So because of that, you're going to probably go back and change uh, lobes mm -hmm. and center lines. Correct. To maximize everything. Try to make each individual cylinder, each individual engine, as efficient as it can. Absolutely, we're back to the efficiency thing. <clears throat> In the pro stock stuff, we had equal runner lengths, but because you have a common plenum and you got this buffeting in the plenum, which mm -hmm. is common to, because every firing order has a different phenomena going on in there, you're going to be changing cam lobes and center lines because of that. Not so okay. much as as you would in a single four barrel right. application like NASCAR, but that, that, that was my curiosity. Is that, that okay? That was approached. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Did you ever play around with actually changing the port design per cylinder location? Well, if you can establish what is going on in there, and we did that numerous times with extremely high speed cameras with uh, plenums that we could mm -hmm. illuminate and see what's going on and what's going on in there. Kind of like our election, chaos. Well, I remember John Cozzi a few years ago at AETC had a video. It may be on uh, YouTube, and I think. I don't remember John had his talking tomorrow. Maybe he can tell us where it's at. He did a video where he put his finger yeah. in the runner, and he was amazed at, that they thought that for certain my finger was going to get sucked down, and it was getting blown up. Yes. Completely Reversion opposite. wave. Yep. Yes. And that's what causes all this turmoil in the plenum. Right. So, you know, the kinds of crazy things you think you don't think about, but they're there because it's oh, counterintuitive. You think, oh, this thing's sucking and you got all this exhaust going, it's got to be flowing that way, and it was going that way. And everybody said this stuff, uh, stuff was simple. <laughs> exactly. And, and not at that point, by That's the way. That's why you're the professor, though. He is the professor. And Kazi's out there saying, don't try that at home, kids. Don't try that at home. That's what he said the first thing. Don't don't try. Everybody's going to want to uh, do it. All right, now's the time for you folks out there to offer up a couple of questions that you might have to the professor of pro stock, Warren Johnson, and uh, they're already stacked up. Oh, good. As you can uh, imagine. Uh, Brian Thompson says, I race NHRA super stock with a max intake port CC of, of uh, 130 CCs. Is there a port velocity 
a compatible valve seat angle requirement relationship. Follow that? I can read it again the second That's time. That's a better. whole bag of worms there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what he's saying is he's, he's set to have a specific volume. That doesn't mean you can't cut the intake port quarter inch off the face of it, have the same volume and make the port bigger, which changes the uh, velocity. But you have to do that all in concert with what the valve size and whatever restrictions you have on the valve seat configuration. I mean, it's, we're back to this combination thing again. Interesting, interesting. A lot of folks uh, just watching from back in the day, guy, gentleman out there, Joe, worked with uh, Grumpy and, and Joe Lapone. I remember watching you guys race against each other at Moroso Motorsports Park back in the day. Uh, is it fair to say, says Greg, is it fair to say that the technology isn't replacing innovation, but rather allowing your innovation to come to life more efficiently, inexpensively, or faster? Like you said, you can try 10 ideas in the time it would try one in the past. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've got the ability to make changes now, you know, basically in hours or in minutes, some case, where we didn't have that uh, uh, luxury before. So uh, the innovation has always been there, but the application of that innovation has changed. The speed of it has changed. Uh, very interesting. Uh, next one, uh, a lot of top level. This is what you were just uh, talking about, but I'm gonna give uh, a second bite at the apple. Uh, Scott, uh, softball pitcher says, a lot of top engine builders say they no longer rely on a flow bench to port development. Do you, if not, when was the last time you did? So this is right what you were talking about, flow bench. With the luxury I have uh, with the machine I've got and its software, I've got the ability to make changes without having to go to the flow bench. To be perfectly honest, I haven't fired that flow bench up in five years. Wow. But you couldn't have got to the point without some flow bench development initially, knowing that, okay, in a certain application with this valve inclination and so forth, this will work. If I've got a flat uh, valve train, like an inline valve train, only certain other configurations uh, will work. So you gotta have that education beforehand to achieve what you want without the use of a flow bench nowadays. But a flow bench, well, I haven't seen a correctly designed flow bench in all my years anyway, but because uh, they've all got defects. Uh, but it's a it's a tool. You just have to learn uh, how to use it. But don't the, uh, accept the results as being gospel. All right, next one. Is plenum volume as important with EFI as it is with a carburetor? It's still important, but not to the magnitude it was with carburetors because the carburetors had such a narrow operating range. Okay, next one. With a four-cylinder engine that has two uh, intake ports cycle, one and four run leaner than cylinders two and three, so all four cam lobes cannot be the same. Two and three always run richer, so we need to change the one and four cylinder cam's design, asks uh, Elgin. Well, I don't know exactly what his application is other than it's a four-cylinder engine. But to me, that initially may sound like a manifolding problem to start with. He didn't uh, say if it was fuel injected or carbureted. Uh, so there's a, another avenue that needs to be addressed. But because he's got uh, these two end cylinders that are different than the two intermediate cylinders, it sounds like a common uh, carbureted engine versus a fuel injected engine with an incorrectly designed manifold.
uh, one of our viewers out there had wondered with EFI, uh, with a relatively dry intake, what problems with intake flow disturbance do you get when the port injector fires in the fuel? Relatively dry, what manifold has he been watching? Yeah. Uh, well, you've, you've, you've got your injector phasing as part of the, uh, the injection program. So that enters into it, injector location enters into it, how the injector is exposed to the intake runner, its location. There's so many variables in there that, first of all, there's no such thing as a dry intake uh, with fuel injection because of the reversion and uh, whatnot, which you were talking about mm -hmm. with John uh, trying that test with his finger. Uh, so everything enters into what is going on in that port. But I can tell you, that a fuel injected engine does not have an intake port that a good fuel injected engine has a significantly different intake port configuration than a carbureted engine. All right, next one. What years or time frame did you most enjoy pro stock racing? I enjoyed all of it, otherwise I wouldn't have done it for that long. I mean, it was just a case of that's where I made my living, so you, you better enjoy it, otherwise this is gonna turn out to be work. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> and if you're going to do it like you did, as in always on, 100%. 24-7, yeah, that's normal. You'd have to love it. All right, next one, Jim, now that the flow bench discussion is out there, what constitutes a properly designed flow bench? I'll leave that up to your imagination because of the fact that if I tell you exactly what it should look like, you'll only make that change and don't realize what the next progression is. So you better learn how to think first. Ah, there you go. And that's why everybody is logged on at I'm going to go moment. back Do real it. quick. Yes, on the, on the perfect uh, timing. We're cycling the, in the, more the, questions. The question about the dry flow, I wonder if he was actually alluding to a direct injection engine. Yeah, I didn't even touch on that subject because a direct injected engine has a completely different port than a port injected engine. Right, yeah, because there's yeah. no fuel upstream. Yeah. Absolutely. Still kind of curious, though. Is there any reversion in that? How much fuel may be transferring back? Because I mean, it's not like the injector's only firing once the valve's closed. I mean, it's firing, most DI engines from the factory will begin to fire at when the piston's at uh, bottom dead center. The intake valve's not closed yet. Yeah, but at the point of intake valve closure, I doubt that there's that much fuel in the cylinder to be Right. Rejected up the right. I would so think I, you're right. Yeah. I would say it's what little exposure I've had to DI engines, I would say it's probably nil to nothing. So it's probably yet a whole nother way of manifold port design oh, absolutely, absolutely. for, for uh, dry flow. Because yep. now you don't have those two molecules of different densities separating. Separating. And causing chaos in the bowl. Are you having fun yet? <laughs> I mean, this is awesome. Exactly. Uh, hey, Warren, what kind of racing do you build engines for nowadays? What about that? What are you working on? Uh, we're still doing a lot of development work on uh, the 500 fuel injected uh, program, simply for the fact that I enjoy working on it. Uh, at, uh, we've seen a lot of gains, which I'd never had the luxury of doing while I was racing. Uh, but we do some Gymkhana engines and uh, some comp eliminator engines and whatnot. We, all, we only take the amount of work that we feel comfortable with that we can do a 100% job on. Got it, got it. Uh, here's one, do you measure running engine intake and exhaust resonance rates and establish camshaft design to maximize cylinder filling, says Brian. 
We've got the ability to do in-cylinder uh, in pressure testing. Uh, we've never really resolved uh, or resorted to that simply from the fact that we didn't have time. Uh, but I'm sure there would be some areas that we could make a few gains in it, but with the way we design our engines to be uh, worked on and maintained, we can make camshaft changes, cylinder head mm -hmm. changes in hours. Uh, so we can pretty much get along without spending a whole lot of money on uh, in-cylinder pressure data acquisition. Uh, someone had a question about the location of the injectors and how do you feel about injectors going under the manifold, uh, pointing upwards as opposed to from the top down? You put them wherever they work best. I mean, every application is different. Uh, you can, well, is he talking about a NHRA uh, manifold where you can't have it uh, above the entry, rate, bottom of the entry uh, runner radius? Or where, what's he talking about? Uh, but what I can say is because every manifold port combination may have some variations in it, everyone has probably an optimal injector location. And it's for sure not the same for every engine. And it is dictated by the rules of the series of the car that you happen yeah. to be in. Like yeah. it might, you might build something totally different if the rules were different. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Lake, any uh, final thoughts for the professor? Well, and I think the fuel plays into that too. Uh, a good buddy of mine, uh, Ron Shaver, uh, is a sprint car guy. Mm -hmm. In injector location, and injector type, be it fan or spray, is a huge thing just within methanol. That's so, so again, the fuel makes a big difference in that as well. Yeah, he's putting 2.2 uh, times the amount of fuel in that methanol engine as we are in the gas right. engine. So, his location of injector and type of injector is completely different than what we would use exactly in a gas engine. So, every engine has its own recipe. As simple as that. This yep. has been fantastic. Warren, thank you very much. Awesome. We're going to have more Warren Johnson coming up in a little bit, so don't go anywhere. Lake, of course, will be back. Warren Johnson from the Engine Performance Expo. Lake, I was there in person, and to be able to relive it, just fantastic. And I got to tell you, the on-air stuff was great. But some of the stuff behind the scenes, like Warren, uh, you know, talking about machining and, and our, our young uh a gentleman there who is demonstrating the machine. They, like, they didn't agree exactly on some things, like run speed and all. I loved seeing Warren in his element. It was. It was fantastic. Of course, you know, there was a couple of great lines from this. You, you, you can't tune it up if you blew it up. That, that's a T-shirt to me yes. right there. And then, then everybody who has a flow bench is looking at their at flow bench now like, oh, I guess that's just a bench now. <laughs> <laughs> Right. He did break hearts. Like, that's the thing about he Warren. Did. Hearts were broken. Like, guys were like, yeah. And then they're like, oh. <laughs> right. That's just, that's, that's WJ. That's, that's why, that's why we shared this. It's like, it's like, this has to be available because it was too good. And like you said, too, the on-air stuff was fantastic. The, the interaction, seeing him and John Callies sitting there talking and going back and forth. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall. Fantastic. So, yes. again, hey, hey you know, there's the Engine Performance Expo is going to happen again in October, and uh, looks like there may be opportunities for people to attend in person if they want to. So, can't give all the details yet because there's nothing, you know, firm. But there's definitely going to be an Engine Performance Expo again in October, 
and there may be an opportunity for people to come be at that fly on the wall. Very, uh, very well executed tease there, Lake Speed Junior. Your media savvy just <laughs> continues to increase. And we actually had some people at the original Engine Performance Expo that just showed up at the door and wanted to right. come in, which was a little surprising. Uh, but it, it, it would be amazing if people could get in there and see it. Now, obviously, the exercise of hidden horsepower for the engine builders out there, whether it be the first timer, the project guy, or the big engine shop, uh, to use total seal piston rings. You guys are taking phone calls all day long on a regular basis. Keith always says it. I know you agree. Like, make the first call on the project to you guys so you can kind of start it off right as opposed to working from the back end. It just seems to work better that way. A hundred percent. I have a story to tell you from literally today. A guy called in. He had his part number. He thought he had figured out what he wanted. Okay. Boom, 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 put it in the system and all that. He starts asking some questions and about one of his buddy's cars. You know, would this same ring set work? And I'm like, well, I'm really... You, you, I can't tell you unless you know your your friend's pistons ring groove dimensions. And I said, it just I said me is the way I would do it. I wouldn't even order any piston rings until I knew exactly what the ring size, you know, grooves is are on the piston. I, I wouldn't even trust the year make model lookup information that's out out there. He said, really? I said, no. I said, me, I mean it. It's probably right, but I'm not. Don't want to deal in probably right. If, if I'm using to reuse that piston or I'm getting new pistons, I, I want to know what I have and make sure that's what I'm ordering is to the right size, so I get the best possible fitment, which leads to the best possible performance. In that conversation, he realized, well, wait, I have you know some some co pistons. I'm like, hang on, wait, the ring set number you gave me. Those were like a stock one. That's not what's going to be on a Weisco. We deal with those guys. We know those guys. They make great pistons. Uh, my dad and I still use them in our, our two-cycle engines. All that stuff's Weisco stuff. I said, that's, that's, that's not it. And so, boom, right there, we were able to turn around, change the order, get the right ring sets uh, for him for his Weisco pistons. So that's the thing. Make us the first call. This is what we do. We're all engine guys. Between Bobby, Kevin, Keith, myself, we're people that love engines. We're not engine builders like a Ron Shaver and Ed Pink or all the our famous guests. Those guys are the legends. They're the best. But we also put together engines. I mean, Bobby owned his own machine shop for years, building engines. Uh, Kevin, obviously, Drag Week, and Keith and myself, we're not pro engine builders, but we're not dumb either. We're happy <laughs> to help. Give us the call, you know. Yeah, well, you got all those guys on the phone line, and based on what we've heard on this podcast, uh, those guys definitely love working with you guys, and uh, I appreciate it. This episode, Warren Johnson, tremendous, but we've got more to come. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, of course, the TotalSeal.com website, and if they want to give you guys a call, what's the number? 623-587-7400. Simple as that. Lake, great job. I love these episodes, kicking it back to the Engine Performance Expo. More to come. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello. You can follow me at WFO Joe on Twitter and Instagram. More to come. Hidden Horsepower, presented by Total Seal.